What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what makes their businesses tick? Today, I'm talking to Joel Gascoigne, the founder of Buffer. Joel, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Colin. Really excited to be on here. I love indie hackers and everything you're doing, and I've listened to several different episodes of podcasts and, yeah, great information being shared. So hopefully I can share some good stuff as well. I'm really excited to have you here as well. Uh, Buffer is a social media platform. It's used by hundreds of thousands of businesses, including mine. I use Buffer every day for indie hackers. And you started the company in 2010, and since then you've gone on to grow your revenue to close to $18 million annually, which is pretty amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about what Buffer is and why so many people are using it? Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Buffer is a, a social media management platform for small businesses. And we focus, our, our big focus along the way has been social media publishing. So we really help customers to share content on social media, so you know, sharing tweets and Facebook posts. And there's a bunch of uh, functionality we have to let you schedule those posts or you know do everything you need to 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 share the, the right content at the right time things and then we also have uh, products that let you do analysis on the impact of your efforts there so uh, we have a social analytics product called buffer analyze as well and we have a social customer service product as well and we're really passionate ourselves about providing really great customer service and so we have Buffer Reply, which helps you to engage your customers, your audience, and respond to them in a timely manner on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks. Um, yeah, and we started in 2010. We have had a mixture of being profitable and raise uh, some funding as well. And we today are, as you mentioned, we're pretty much right at 18 million in annual revenue. We're about 70 people right now, and we are profitable and generating about 300 to 400K in net profit per month uh, currently. So, yeah. That's a ton of products. And I think one of the cool things to me about Buffer is that you're not just putting a lot of time and effort into innovating on your products, but you also put a lot of time and effort into innovating with your company itself. You've experimented a lot with hiring, with having an entirely remote distributed team, with being transparent about revenue and salaries, not having managers, etc. And you were trying out a lot of this stuff like before it was cool, you know, six or seven years ago. Why why do that? Why not just follow sort of the established playbook for how to build a company so you have more energy to focus on your product and your revenue growth? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, thanks. Yeah, it's been a fun journey. Um I think really it comes from like why why do a lot of people start a, a company? And they often start a company because they have they have certain experiences they've had in the past or they have certain things that where they want more freedom or more flexibility and those things were all true for me i had i had had a previous bad experience being at a company that i worked for i was only really working part-time for them so my, the impact on me was not too great but they essentially went bankrupt and a lot of people um, lost months of pay and i came i i lost a little bit of of pay through that as well but I, I didn't come out too bad. But, you know, there was really a lack of transparency around that whole 
situation and I, and it left me feeling like wow if everyone knew the the situation we were truly in maybe that whole company could have pulled together and and got through that that's just one example and and then you know i also always dreamed of, of just generally more freedom to travel and and do certain things and so those are all things i think that personally for me went into like okay i'm gonna start this company and try and bring about those things and then you know, once you actually get into it, that's where it, it gets hard, right? Because you, you know, you might strive. Maybe you get investors on board, or just the general normal way of things is is probably to focus far more on the growth aspects and the the customer, the market, the products and things. Um, and that's great, and we have a huge focus on on that. But we've worked pretty hard to retain the the other aspects as well, and try to kind of innovate and experiment and just question the norms and say, you know, what, how should things be? How could things be better? I really believe that the way businesses work today is kind of, there's a lot of layers and layers of, of different um, kind of, you know, the way it's done type things that just build up. And, and that's the, the result of what we have today for a lot of companies, how they run. So we try to break apart those things and question and say, you know, how should it be now? What would, what would we often say within the team, like that we're striving to create a workplace of the future. So what would a workplace of the future really look like? And can we experiment and push ourselves and, and try things and some things work out, some things don't. Um, but generally with this goal towards also innovating on our culture and workplace and creating a really positive and inspiring, inclusive and productive uh, culture that everyone's excited to be part of for, for the long term. I really like what you said about sort of reacting to the experiences that you've had in the past and also living up to the goals that you've had for yourself and for Buffer, for creating a company that you actually want to work on. Because I think every entrepreneur, when they start, has some vision of what they want their life to be like. They have some actual goals they're striving for. And there's something about the difficulty of the journey itself where it's easy to lose sight of that. And you end up building a company that five years later you look up and like you don't even like working there <laughs> you know you're doing things totally. you don't enjoy doing and it's, yeah. it's so easy to do that so it's a lot of respect for the fact that you've been able to make a lot of hard decisions and and build a culture that for better or for worse is what you wanted it to be thanks yeah i appreciate that i think it's it's really important for founders to once in a while just stop and reflect and question like you know i still staying food some of those things and you know, maybe those goals change over time and that's fine too but I, I think it is important to take a step back time time and say like is this are, are you still enjoying this like showing up to to work at, at this place and be part of this and also like something i've done a couple of different times in the journey is just to try and extrapolate out the the current trends of where the company is heading and see okay where are we going to be in a couple of years from now is that a place that I want to, you know, am, am I going to enjoy waking up in the morning and being part of that and, and working there? And, you know, at times, sometimes it starts to drift in a direction that is no longer aligned with those goals and values and things that you have. And, and then it's time to make some changes and sometimes those can be tough, right? Yeah. I think trying to, trying to predict the future is an underrated activity. Like not many of us spend time thinking about what life's going to be like two years from now. And it's, 
it's not easy to do and get it right, but it's worth trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, going from some zero to $18 million a year in revenue is a pretty significant journey. But let's let's start by talking about you and what you were up to before you started Buffer. What was it like growing up as Joel Gascoigne? And what are some of the things from your childhood that have influenced the person that you are today? Yeah, so I, I'm British. I grew up in the UK and I was in a city called Sheffield for most of my childhood, which is, I think it's like the fourth largest city in the UK, somewhere around that. And it's about an hour from Manchester. And I grew up there for most of my childhood, other than three and a half years, where I lived in Japan as a child growing up and from the age of about four to seven. And so that had a pretty big impact on me. And uh, I think, you know, I, I'd made some friends and I went off to Japan and, you know, you know, lost touch with a lot of them and have new friends from Japan and new experiences. And my parents kind of threw me into a, a Japanese nursery and school and I had to learn Japanese from scratch and then, you know, had friends and, and I had certain experiences like I got bullied for being foreigner. They have a, a word in Japan, gaijin. So I got called that quite a lot. That's certainly these experiences. Um, and then came back to the UK and, uh, you know, had to try and make new friends and, and reconnect with friends. And I, I obviously was not happy with my parents to make me leave all my friends in Japan as well. But I think when I look back on it in hindsight, like, you know, 10, uh, 20 years later, I realized how powerful that was for me and how awesome, how awesome that was. And it's a very special part of, of my kind of life now is, is Japan, Japanese, and I've uh, been able to keep up language in some ways and things like that. So that's one thing. Um, and then, you know, after that, growing up, uh, I a, a couple of interesting things. I think generally I had a, a good childhood, but I also had some challenging parts of it. Um, so I'm, I'm a pretty extreme introvert and I struggled a lot in like, you know, high school and generally in education settings. Um, so I feel like I, I personally believe that back then, at least, and I think it's still the case, education systems are really uh, designed against <laughs> introverts. Uh, you know, you from the moment you, you get to school, you're in a classroom of 30 kids and and so it's a, a group setting it's not great for introverts and then once you're finish a couple of classes you're you know in your free time and you know everyone is just hanging out with each other and so you can't really also get in time so I think I didn't understand it at the time and it was really a really big struggle and then over time I've learned a lot about myself through that um, in terms of my being an introvert and what that means and managing my energy levels and being able to recharge by having time to myself and things. But I definitely struggled with that. And I, I was super drained at, at times, like on a daily basis and got kind of bullied and had some fights and things just due to that, which I think on reflection was really just me being socially drained and just struggling in that environment. Yeah, I think Interestingly for me, when I think about that, that is also what led me to online gaming being a big part of my kind of life growing up um, because I would have these experiences at school and then just kind of go home and, and kind of have this whole other world and other 
friends and things that I would kind of enter into and and that's where a lot of my joy came from um in in that some of those years that I had uh, challenges but yeah I think around uh, maybe 10 11 years old I got into video games and and stuff I mean all all through childhood really um but especially like around 10 11 I I got a PC and would play like Age of Empires and some games like this. And then I started playing them online and I, I met some people as like, you know, chat rooms and lobbies and where people hang out and stuff and set up games with each other and just chat and things. So I just like hang out there and meet people. And then like, you know, there's, there's teams that form there's clans. And so I, I, I joined one of those. I eventually ended up starting my own one of those. Um, so that's kind of one thing that I, I remember, like I was 12 years old and I had this clan that I started and there was 50 people in it at one point. And then I looked back on it like years later and thought, oh, oh, that was kind of, that was, that was an organization. We had like trials of the game. You had to like beat someone else in the clan to become part of the clan. And it's like a lot of really interesting things uh, from that. But uh, that's where I first started to learn about programming and web design and things as well. So after a while, kind of, I, I realized that it would be really valuable for the, for the clan to have a website just to be able to share news and, and communicate and things like that. So I, and I, I built a website, but it was literally just with angel fire. There was like angel fire and GeoCities, And I used those to basically create a website without having to code anything, but those tools let you jump into the code and see what's going on. And that's where I learned HTML and JavaScript and CSS. And then I got pretty passionate about those things. And then at one point I was like, okay, it would be useful if the people in this team could actually sign into this website as well. And we could have some private communications going on as well. Um, I had someone that was kind of another key person in the, in the team and he learned PHP. And, and then I, I basically just started learning PHP from him learned it and then before I knew it, I was like okay I'm kind of like full stack web developer before that term was even being used um but I, I really got into that and, and, and loved that and so yeah and then I started building websites for others and had clients and things like that but yeah so that's kind of some interesting key aspect for me of growing up. That's such an interesting path to take to get into entrepreneurship because I had a similar path where I played a lot of online games Ended up creating sort of a guild yeah. <laughs> online, needed a website, needed to program it. And on one hand, you're playing a game, but on the other hand, you're getting like all these skills with managing a team of people and all of this tech where you're trying to build websites and you have all the same jobs that anyone really does in a normal company. So I wonder how many founders have had a similar path. Yeah. I know you started at least one company before you started Buffer. Hmm. What's the story behind that and, and what are some things that you learned from that experience? Yeah, so I um, I had a startup uh, before Buffer. It came about because I, I went to university, to college, and I graduated. I did computer science. And by the end of it, I knew pretty clearly that I wanted to try and make something happen. So I got a, I got a job as a web developer, um, and I specifically was able to kind of negotiate to only work three days a week for them. And I had these two days a week that I would be able to really try and make something happen myself. And, and really, it was like three days or even four days a week. It's nice because I would 
with the weekends well on on my own projects and so the key idea like project that i worked on before buffer was called one page and we talked about it as like kind of your business card in the cloud slash single web page for all of your online identities and contact information so if anyone knows about like about.me it was essentially that kind of concept and yeah i had a co-founder for it that i someone that i met at uh, university who was also really into kind of tech uh, entrepreneurship and things and so we worked on it together for about a year and i learned a ton of things made all the mistakes of like having the idea and just building it without really checking if anyone else had that problem and things and me and my co-founder at the time realized like there's a few ways that we didn't work well together we had a lot of kind of fights and challenges and things and we were living together just to save money we were like in this super cheap place there was like cockroaches around or just like bugs and stuff and it's just like it was it was pretty bad but yeah and then living together <laughs> and having some of these issues sometimes as well was really interesting but we were both really passionate and wanted to, to make something happen and um we had a level of um a few wins during it we managed to get a little bit of like grants funding from there was like a government kind of program for new businesses and so and then i met some great great mentors through it as well and uh one of the key things that happened was during doing that project that, that startup i also discovered the, the lean startup um concept so uh, it was actually eric reese's blog uh, startup lessons learned that i came across before he was really doing a lot of speaking or well before the book but i came across his blog during that time and i just got hooked immediately and it's like every blog post i was just waiting for it and excited and i would comment and things um and yeah and i and i started to really internalize those lean startup concepts um and realized that i wasn't <laughs> using them very much uh, for the for the startup and right. so yeah so by the end of it I, I was i think i was pretty well equipped i i don't think i could have done buffer without having gone through that experience let's talk about the early days of buffer what made you decide to start this company and how did you come up with the idea at first? Yeah, so I I'd worked on one page for about a year. Me and my co-founder decided that it didn't work that well between us. So we kind of separated in a sense, um, which is a tough thing to go through. And ultimately, I was left with continuing one page. So, And now I had this kind of like bit of pressure and freedom in a sense to to like change it up massively so i immediately pivoted one page and and i was like well we'd actually got about ten thousand users so i felt like there was some value there people that i could try and you know see if there's other problems they have and things so i ended up like experimenting with a way to scan business cards and i got it all working with amazon mechanical turk and stuff and and it started to get really interesting, and I was I was more and more uh, trying to embrace the lean startup concepts, which uh, a lot harder to do in practice than like when you read about it. So I started doing these experiments, and then I just found that the margins were just so bad with like business card scanning and things. And I wasn't that passionate about it, but it was like a natural kind of shift from from what one page initially was about. So I did that for a few months, 
And I think it was during that time that I had probably the two years prior to that, I had been using Twitter a lot, like more and more. And by that point, I'd maybe reached about 1,500 followers. And I remember maybe around like 800 followers, it just started to get really fun for me. Um, you know, that's the point, I think, where you point where if you share something, then people will like reply to it and there'll be a conversation or there'll be some kind of engagement on it. So I just started using Twitter more and more. And I was sharing a lot of the learnings and blog posts, like all you know, lean startup blog posts and that kind of thing that I was coming across. So I was doing a lot of like sharing content on Twitter at that time and just sharing my experiences and numbers and things like that as well. And that's kind of when it all mixed together into this perfect storm of like, okay, the one page is like not really working. I think I'm ready to do something else different from that. And then I was like really getting into Twitter and seeing the potential of Twitter. Like, so it's still pretty early at that point. And then I, that's basically where I had the idea of a buffer from was like, well, I'm sharing these articles regularly and I want to do it more because the more I do it, the more people I'm finding that I'm able to, to meet from this. And I'd actually moved back to my hometown uh, at that point. And oh, I was kind of like, I, I was in either my hometown or Birmingham in the UK. I think it was in Birmingham in, in the UK, but it was not London where there's like a real startup hub. And um, so in some ways I was using Twitter to try and meet people that were in that city but maybe, you know, there wasn't actually any startup events. So it was a way to try and like kind of pull these people out from the woodworks. Like let's, let's all try and talk about what, we, what we're doing here. And yeah, I've just, at a point, there was a point where I was like, oh, this is a problem I have. Like I would actually like to share a lot more of these articles and things that I'm coming across. But I was reading my content in like one or two different sessions in the day maybe in the morning in the evening like using google reader at the time so i'd like do this reading in, in five minutes or you know five ten fifteen minutes of reading in the morning and i would find you know a bunch of articles that i wanted to share on twitter and then i started sharing them and then i i realized fairly quickly like this is not great to just like blast my like twitter <laughs> like following with you know five or ten articles in one go that's the where the idea came from basically it was like okay i can easily build just a little scheduler like cron task to let me just put these instead of putting these tweets immediately on twitter let me just put them into a database and then have this schedule thing that would just pulse me out of a database and share it um once an hour instead so that i could put like 10 things in there and they will get shared every hour or every two hours instead. But it is worth noting that at that point I was kind of like had a little bit of burnout or just like from the experience of, of one page where one page I'd really said like, this is a startup. I was like, this is a company. It's going to be big. Like we didn't charge any of the users anything. We were like trying to get funding, had some meetings and stuff and it didn't really work out. And also I had this experience with, the co-founder, um, who I'm still in touch with, a really great guy, but it just didn't work. But so I was a bit burned, like feeling from those two things. So with Buffer, I was like, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm gonna. This is it's just a project. It's a little thing. I'm going to charge users if I can. I'm going to try and be really 
disciplined to do it in the lean startup way. Um, but this is just a project. I'm not going to make it like bigger than it is or needs to be initially. So, and at that point I'd, I'd run out of funds, like from this grant that we had. So I had to start getting web development work again. So I had two clients. I was actually working five days a week for the clients. So this was really something I had to just fit in, in the sides. And yeah. Well, despite that, you ended up going from really having no idea at all to having the idea and then having paying customers in something like seven weeks. And I asked people on the Indie yeah. Actors Forum if they had any questions for you. And David Lawson asked if you remember how you structured your day back then and how many hours you're putting into development and marketing and you know what that process was like of going from, from nothing to your first paying customer. Yeah, it's a great question. So... I think it was it was it was definitely a, a interesting, somewhat of a struggle uh, period to like find the time um, in the day and things. I think there's a few interesting things that come to mind from that period of time. One is that I think the success in making it happen within seven weeks is, is like very much down to the lean startup concepts um, because I try to be super disciplined with those, and it's what helped me to stop coding after the first couple of days of the excitement of having the idea and and actually uh, questioned myself like is this something that other people would get value from is this something that is a true problem would people pay for it so I, the lean startup, startup concepts helped me like kind of forced me to stop just building which is what's comfortable and easy for me and and start having those conversations start doing marketing to to get those conversations and, and things it wouldn't have happened as fast if I hadn't taken that approach. And also the other thing is helped me to really be very thoughtful about cutting down scope. Like what is really needed and what is the goal? And I think, you know, with the lean startup concepts, the, the goal was this idea of like validated learning of like learning more about whether your assumptions are correct. Like, is this idea going to work? And so I basically threw out a bunch of, of things that, that were not needed, like, you know, changing your password or like, and some of these things, you know, a framework might just do for you now, but back then, like had to be questioning all of these things. Um, and so, and even the, the payment process initially was literally just a PayPal button that let you start a subscription, but none of the process of like, it didn't even email the user that like, that, that received a payment. It didn't even change their, account to be a paid account so sometimes people are left for hours they've started paying like me for the, for this product and their account is still on the on the free plan but all of those things were like why work on that making that process really great when i don't even have the first customer yet and right. let's get the first customer and then do that do you remember your exact process for how you found your first few customers and what those conversations were like when you tried to convince them to pay for a very early buffer yeah, um, it was, so this is a question that sometimes people ask me, like, how should I market? How do I get people to my landing page or whatever? And I think in some ways I, I look back and think I was lucky, but I was, I was also, it was the right thing for the product. So essentially Twitter was my channel for that. So I was lucky. I'd, I'd been using Twitter for a while. I had 1,500 maybe 1,700 followers by that point. So I had enough people on there that I could actually share something and get a few people to visit the website. 
but also it was the right channel because this was literally a product for, for people doing, you know, sharing content or maybe doing marketing in a sense on Twitter. So yeah, it was just kind of a, a blend of like look and the right thing anyway. But that was how I initially uh, shared it and got people visiting the website. I also just wanted to touch on the other part of the question that you mentioned before, which was like structuring my day. Mm-hmm. And so I remember initially I would do my work for clients in the, you know, in the regular hours, I would basically wake up, do my client work from nine to five. Those were like the hours I'd build. And then in the evening I would work on, on buffer and that had mixed results. Um, I think sometimes I had enough energy and passion to like do bits of work, but actually uh, over the first couple of weeks of that second week period, I think I found pretty quickly that I was like pretty drained from the day of working on other stuff that I didn't end up like actually getting that much done on Buffer. So one of the things that I did, which worked really well for me at the time was I, I I flipped it around and I started getting up early. So I'd wake up early and work on Buffer um, and I had all the energy. I had to sleep a little bit earlier, but I would get up and do at least a couple of hours um, on Buffer in the early morning. And then and then I would work on client work. And the client work, you know, was, was not too challenging for me. It was like building websites, whereas I think Buffer was way more challenging because it was like totally new trying to be disciplined about lean startup, like trying to do marketing stuff and different things, all the things that I didn't really have any experience about. So it just, uh, you know, I think it was really valuable for me to switch that around, be fresh in the morning for that. So that's at least something that worked well for me and was probably like a pretty big factor in, in making it happen in seven weeks. So what are some of the biggest milestones that you hit in those first few months or maybe just a few years of working on Buffer? Yeah, Um so the biggest early success was getting, so after this seven weeks process, um, I'd been like having conversations with a lot of potential users and customers during that time and built up the confidence in myself, like, oh, I should build this, um, getting enough validation that people are saying they'll use it. Some people are saying they'll pay for it and then launched it. Um, and when I say launch, it was, you know, a very, very basic product uh, at that point. It would only work for one Twitter account and things like that. But yeah, launched it. And uh, the first huge win was getting uh, the first paying customer after three days of launch. Um, that was a huge moment for me. And it's kind of funny to look back on because that first customer basically started a $5 a month uh, subscription on that day. Um, so I literally only got $5 in my PayPal account, but that was just a, a momentous like mo- moment for me. I was jumping around the room in excitement and, <laughs> and, and it, it's funny to think back because I was like doing, you know, website, web development, client work and making, you know, w- way more than that in, in a week. But I think it was the fact that it was like recurring revenue and it was, from a product. So that was a big step for me is like moving away from charging for my time and charging for a product. And that was just so clear to me at that moment. It's like, wow, this is, this is big. Like I've achieved something I've been striving for, for a long time. So that was a huge win. Then first month revenue was $20 in total, had three more 
paying customers in the rest of the month. It's a very, very small <laughs> amount of revenue in the first month. But it was it was kind of like a slow burn. Um, so I was still doing uh, client work for several more months. Um, and then my co-founder, Leo, joined me in about uh, maybe a month or, yeah, about a month or month and a half, two months after I'd launched. Um, so this is like three, four months after I'd started. And it was right at the point when I was realizing that I needed to balance my time between marketing and development. And, and it would be easy for me to keep developing the product further. And that's easy for me. Like, that's what I know how to do. But the fact that I had these four paying customers made me realize, like, oh, like there's something here. And even in this very minimal form, it's valuable enough that these four people have decided to start paying. So if that's the case, there must be a lot more people out there that would also um, have sim- similar problems and, and be able to get value and, and pay for it. So that was when I decided like, oh, I need to actually start focusing on marketing in some ways. And I started doing it myself for a few weeks. And then that's when Leo just got in touch with me. We'd known each other for a while um, from university. He, we'd always had like different projects that we'd worked on individually and he just checked in and was, um, I think we were like chatting on Skype at that point and he said, how's it going? What's, what's going on? And I said, well, there's this new project and it's actually starting to, to, to work. Like I've got some paying customers. It's pretty exciting, but I need to like manage my time. I still didn't have much time at that point. So yeah. So he said, you know, I could do, I could do some marketing. I could do, you know, maybe I can try doing some of this. Um, and we started off very lightweight. But yeah, he, he jumped on board and it worked really well and uh, it was it was great. And so the, the next big milestone was really, uh, I'd say, Leo figuring out that marketing side. And so he did a bunch of different experiments, different channels and things. It was really just like him trying everything. Um, and we, we figured out that uh, now you would call it content marketing. Um, we, we basically figured out that was huge opportunity and, and driver for us so yeah i think we in the first month i mentioned we got these four customers we had about 100 free users sign up overall and then over the course of the next five months or so leo um, and his efforts on content marketing helped us grow to um a hundred thousand free users wow. and a revenue revenue of about uh, maybe five thousand dollars a month or something like that i mean and one of the big milestones within that was the moment that i could start to drop my client work so i, I distinctly remember having one thousand two hundred dollars a month as a huge like milestone of like that's when like i could start to pay my rent from this and like start to drop that work and, and things um so yeah those are some of the the early milestones in the first year and you guys still do a lot of content marketing today. I mean, you guys write a ton. You publish a lot of transparent stats on Twitter. You're constantly talking about like what's going on in your business. How has your strategy for reaching new customers and getting more people on the buffer changed over time since the beginning? Yeah, um, I think we have a lot more channels now. We've figured out a lot more things. Um, we really have a full marketing team now and um, reaching millions of, of uniques a month. And things. So it's really grown a ton over time. 
but the, the core principles are still there and still alive and, and well in our strategy today. And those were put in place like pretty early on. Uh, yeah, it's really about like how can we deliver great value uh, upfront and be generous with our knowledge and insights and, and, and then, you know, getting that audience in from that and driving the signups. And, you know, it, it, it goes hand in hand with having freemium model as well, making it really easy for anyone to just sign up for free or start a trial um, of one of the paid plans um, for free. And, and then kind of, kind of, you know, uh, there's a big, we, we, we're driving this big audience and then we, we want to have like a pretty wide top of the funnel to let people come in and, and try it out as well. Are there any things you guys have tried that just didn't work at all? Yeah, we have tried a bunch of things. I think, I mean, I especially remember early on, we, we were trying so many different things to, uh, before we even landed at content marketing where we were trying to reach out and get press and that just like fell flat on its face. And we, we, we started to figure some of that out a bit more over time. We've also tried paid acquisition and we've really not figured that out yet. So that might just be our own lack of, of skills there and things, but we've tried that multiple times. And to this day, we do very little, um, you know, Facebook ads, Google ads, and these kind of things. One thing that sets you guys apart is just how transparent you are. You are one of the most, if not the most, transparent companies that I know of. You share how much revenue you're generating, you share how much you pay your employees, you share your customer churn rates, and things like that. How do you think about being transparent? What are some of the advantages and disadvantages, and why is this something you choose to do? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's definitely one of the, the, the most kind of fun aspects for me, and, and I think it really just came from a place of having a desire to, to share these things and feeling like that's the right thing to do. Like it just makes sense. It made sense to me to be open about as much as possible, even from the very early days. So, and it, it's actually interesting that in some ways it, it relates directly back to the product, which was initially I was sharing a lot on Twitter about my own like experiences and ups and downs and things. So yeah, and then in the first year of Buffer, when we started to have some of that success, I was sharing on Twitter, even this is back in the early part of 2011, I was sharing the numbers, like number of signups and revenue and these things. And I think there was a moment where me and Leo talked and said, like, should we do this? Is this like, and no one else really does this, but we just felt like, oh, this is like a really good thing to do. And um, I, I, I would sometimes meet with founders and I found that if I just shared everything about Buffer, they would tend to then maybe share some numbers about their company and we would just have a far more fruitful conversation where we could help each other a lot more. Um, and then over time, I think we've, we, we started to recognize the huge power of that for the team and for customers, especially in terms of building trust. So we found that by being really open and transparent in the team about about all the things going on uh, when we've raised funding rounds we've basically made every email viewable for the whole team we've had acquisition offers we've shared them fully and shared our whole thought process and uh, a bunch of different things um, and then we've had you know tough moments we, we buffer was hacked and we shared it really early with customers before we even knew the full extent of of it and things um 
And so it also extends to customers where, you know, we've had tough times we've or, and, and we've generally tried to be very open and transparent all along the way about everything. And I think that's built up this trust and this really kind of tight knit customer base who are, are, are right there with us whenever if, if something challenging does come up for us. And that's pretty hard to to scale and, and maintain at scale. And I think it's something that that's something we strive for. And I think we've managed to keep some of that over time. So it was also a big moment for us when we decided to articulate and put into words our values. And we did this around, I think it was in 2013 uh, or so. And when we did that, we knew that transparency would be a value, but we decided to phrase it as default to transparency, which is this idea that Let's flip it around and say, you know, everything is transparent unless there's a really good reason why it's why it shouldn't be. That's what triggered us to share our salaries transparently, and uh, we, yeah, we, a lot of other things came from that moment forward where we kind of put it into into writing and said, like, it default to transparency. It, it made us question a lot of things across the company and say. Could we be more transparent about about this in order to live fully up to the value? And so then we started sharing salaries, equity, even more numbers and things like that. One thing that keeps a lot of founders up at night is that many of us are building on top of other people's platforms. We're building on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and Buffer is no exception. How do you think about mitigating the risk that comes with building on other platforms? And have you ever had any big scares? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say it's it it would probably be up there as one of the biggest risks to buffer. So I, I think about it a lot. Obviously, we are built on top of we're, we're largely built on top of Facebook and Twitter at this point, and that's what we we provide products to help customers to to make use of those platforms for their small businesses. And there's definitely been some interesting twists and turns in the journey of these network. APIs, you know, Twitter has had a bunch of different changes they've made to their API along the way, and Facebook has as well. I think that one of the ways I think about it is, I mean, there's there's been changes along the way where I know that if you think back to Twitter in 2011, 2012, 2013, there was so many Twitter clients, right, that, that you know, that you could use to actually read tweets and things and Today, there's very few third-party Twitter clients, and I think even there's new API challenges and things going on right now, I think, that might impact even some of the, the last remaining Twitter clients. Um, I think that one of the challenges you have to think about is, like, how do you, like, really align yourself with those platforms if you're, um, if you're built on top of them? That's something we've strived really hard to do, and I think the fact that, Buffer in the early days was more about contributing content to the platform rather than like consuming and reading tweets and things that helped us to be aligned more with the platform because obviously with their ad based model, they need to kind of have that control over the consuming of, of the feed. And then also I think there's, there's always these opportunities to really push the boundaries of what the network allows through their API. And this is something we've seen even more recently, like to, to take another example is Twitter made some changes to their rules around like automation and stuff. And 
And so in some sense, you could say, well, buffers, like, isn't buffer, that's what it's for, it's for automation. So wouldn't that have a huge impact? But actually what we've found is that in the last few years, there's some other startups that have kind of pushed the boundaries of that automation within Twitter and let you really just say, you know, upload some content and we'll just continually share it on Twitter for you. Um, or we'll just continually share content from your blog for you and things. And we've actually, we actually had a lot of requests for this kind of thing over the years. Um, but we went, never went too far with it. I think it's just about having, you want to have your own stance uh, in addition to what the like network might allow. So I kind of visualize it as like, okay, the network gives us these boundaries of APIs of what we can work within. And we always try with Buffer to be like not pushing to the edges of those boundaries, but just like sitting within it and having our own stance on things. That's helped us a lot along the way where we never pushed too far with the automation. And now they've changed the rules around that a little bit. And then the other thing is, of course, is just having really good relationships with them. So we are uh, an official Instagram marketing partner. We have a good relationship with Facebook. We have contacts that people we can speak to there. We go to the Facebook conference each year, similarly at Twitter. And we also, um, for um, a couple of our products, we actually pay Twitter for data access as well. And so there's a, there's a number of different things that we do to to try and be well aligned and be a good, you know, partner to those networks, but it's still, you know, a key, key, a key factor. I think these days, you know, it's, it's actually interesting. I've spoken to some other founders where I've always felt like, oh, maybe if we weren't on top of Facebook and Twitter, like we, we would be, you know, maybe it will be a lot less stressful and things, but then I talked to some other founders, which are like essentially not necessarily built on top of anything, but, you know, you always have your, your struggles and your challenges and things. So I've, I've spoken to many founders that have just as many other challenges, um, you know. So it's just like, you know, what, which, which challenges you end up with. <laughs> I brought this up earlier, but you guys have a wide range of products that you're working on, not just one. How do you maintain your vision as you expand into new areas? And how do you decide what products to build and whether or not to do new things versus doubling down on what you already have? Yeah. I personally find vision to be very interesting. Um, I think that it's important to keep refreshing vision and, and having a clear vision to work towards, especially as your team grows. That's extremely important for the team to understand the vision, be bought into it, be part of um, you know defining it in some ways, um, but also guiding them with a vision. But I would say like sometimes I think there's this idea that you need to have this huge, grandiose vision from day one and it can't change at all and i think in some ways the vision shouldn't change that frequently but if i'm totally honest when i started buffer like my vision was can i build a product that i can work full-time on and, and not do client work and so that was a pretty strong vision for me at the time it was one that i was very passionate about it's not really a vision that a 70 person team that you are paying full-time to, to be working on something could could really get excited about but i think today we just see this huge opportunity to expand further and provide more value and and kind of bring bring the buffer way of doing things both in terms of like marketing and and products and customer service we believe that we we strive to create great products and provide better than expected customer service and and do it with really genuine and generous marketing we saw this opportunity to expand. And so about 
two years ago, we really started that effort. And about a year ago, we really kicked it up a, a notch. And so Buffer has really been one product for most of the journey. And uh, today we have two separate products that are both very early stages. So our revenue is 18 million. And one of these products uh, generates about half a million of, of the 18 million. And then the other product is like brand new and is generating about $500 a month in revenue right now. So very early stages, but the the overall approach is I really am keen to maintain the the quality um, that we have. So we want to have a high quality product, um, but we also want to provide more overall, more value to customers and solve more problems for customers. We're choosing not to have one product and one suite and bring everything into that one dashboard and things um, because we feel like we will not be able to maintain the, the quality of the experience if we do that. So, so we're kind of creating like we, we want to strive for like uh, multiple best of breed products and really be mindful about when we expand and what we add in and things. So Buffer recently became profitable, but not for the first time. How important is profitability to you compared to growth? And what are some of the steps that you've taken to ensure that Buffer can become a profitable company? Interestingly, I think in many ways, profitability is just built into the DNA of Buffer. So right from the beginning, with I mentioned one page, this previous uh, project that I had. One page, I tried to raise some funding and failed and things, and it was never generating any revenue. And then Buffer... You know, day three, having the first revenue come in, it was really a change of mindset from thinking like, oh, maybe I can get investment to fund my ability to work on this to saying like, I've tried that and it failed. And I don't have the track record. I don't have the expertise. I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to have to build something that people pay for. That's the only way I'm going to be able to work on this full time. So really just started off with that DNA. And then over time, we had this opportunity to raise some funds and we did that and it's really been we've done two rounds of funding and both times we've been profitable prior to the funding round so it's kind of been like the the default of profitability raise funding and that puts us into state of not being profitable for a while and then working our way back to profitability but it's also been a lot of learnings around like taking investment and the implications of that. This also led me to feel that actually in the long run now, I'd rather keep profitable and that will allow us to actually experiment more and, and really take things in our, in our own path and our own direction. Yeah, being profitable opens up such a world of possibilities where you can go in pretty much whatever direction you want. Whereas when you've raised money and expanded your team, your only two options are to focus on either getting back to profitability so your company won't die or to focus on raising another round. You've mentioned a few times how in the early days you were following the lessons from the lean startup. Do you still follow those practices? And how do you think about becoming a better founder and building a better company? And what are some lessons that early stage founders can take away from what you've learned? Yeah, I believe, so in terms of the lean startup practices, we really try and still apply those today. And interestingly, I think a lot of people think about lean startup for engineering or product. Um, I think it applies much more widely than that. So we generally try and, try and take this philosophy of like, what's our uh, you know ideal outcome, and what's our what are our assumptions? Can we validate that in a small way and then expand it out? Um, so I think it's a very like cost effective kind of lean way to just run a company. Um, and I think over time, 
also more people have joined the team and my role switched from being kind of a, uh, a practitioner of it, of Lean Startup to being a coach uh, for, for Lean Startup in the team. And that's a role I've really enjoyed. And I think we're seeing some great results from that, especially in the last year or so. And so then that allows me to, to kind of uh, also step to then a slightly higher level and think about some bigger things of like, okay, what's the, the big vision or strategy and, and working with all the different areas and things. So yeah, that's kind of, um, but it's still very much alive and well, like this new product that we have that's generating $500 a month in revenue feels in many ways like the, the beginning early days again. There's a, there's a few different differences when you have, when you already have a product that's, and you have a company and, and it sits within that. And so in terms of like distribution, we have this big advantage, right, of like, existing, you know, 80,000 paying customers already and a lot of uh, free users. And so that's not really our challenge anymore. We don't have to go crazy about the content marketing and stuff like we did in the early days for, for this new product that we have. But so we actually kind of have to like uh, stop the distribution and, and control it in some ways. But we, we still need to be very disciplined about the lean startup um, concepts and and we've like launched that product kind of at a very early state and things. And, and so, yeah. Cool. Well, it's been great having you on. Is there anything else you'd like to say or could you tell the listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're working on and what you're doing at Buffer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me at joel.is. Um, that's my, my website. So Joel is. Um, and uh, also on Twitter, Joel Gascoigne. That's, uh, my username is just my full name. And uh, yeah, I have um, my email on my website and things. And I'm always happy to hear from others that are trying to get something off the ground. I love to help with those things. And you can also just like ask me anything on Twitter as well. So I'd love to be in touch. Um, but um, yeah, and the, and the other thing is we are growing the team and we're doing some fun stuff at Buffer as well. So of course, I would really love to hear from anyone that might be interested there. But um, thanks so much, Cortland, for, for the time and the great questions and great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Joel. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 